Say it again with me as I had you do last week, will you? The unstoppable chase of God's grace. Would you say it? Grace. Now say it like you're wide awake and just ate some good treats and you're raring to go. The unstoppable of God's grace. All right. Jonah 1, verse 17. I want to just commend all of you. I've noticed in recent weeks how we've really become uh, better and with one voice at proclaiming the word of the Lord together. I know when we began implementing uh, congregational scripture reading a little while ago, at first it was a new thing and we were kind of all, all over the place and some of us were a little shy about speaking out loud and all of this, but the, the, the beauty of hearing the word from your voices coming together as we do during our scripture reading times and even in these times together as I'm a nuisance and I keep bugging you to say things with me and read scriptures together, it's just good. How many know that when we express something, it takes deeper impression in our lives then? Have you found that? I've found that when I express things, when I do more than just read them in my head or in my mind, but I express them, they find a deeper impression in my life. That's why it's good, and, and I've encouraged this and, and would do so again. Read the scriptures aloud to yourself. When you have your time of Bible reading through the week, uh, if you're in your car or at where, wherever it might be, if you can, read the scripture aloud. It's, it's amazing the difference it makes when we read the Word of God aloud. And let those words and the spirit of the word fill the atmosphere of our lives. Read it through your homes. Walk through your homes and read the word aloud as you you regularly read the scriptures. It's a powerful thing. Jonah 1 and verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. We've come, as we said last week, to one of the most well-known parts of this story. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, and we're going to find as we look at this this morning, let me just insert this before we read any further. We're going to find in Jonah as, as as God begins to deal with him and strip away the layers, the superficial layers of his life and his soul and gets down to the, the deep part of him and seeks to deal with some of the, the character flaw that is there in him as is there in all of us in different ways. We're going to start to see here today, even in Jonah's prayer, his this psalm that he he utters to the Lord, we're going to see some contradiction. We're going to see some inconsistency. We're going to see some incongruence in Jonah's life from the, 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 the narrative, the story that God is seeking to convey. There's going to be some inconsistencies and some tensions that we're going to see. And so he prays from the belly of the fish, and he says... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, 
And he answered me. Notice how often Jonah says me and I and myself through this as well. That's a little indicative of something. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried from the very depths of the earth where the, where the dead exist. I cried out, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, verse 3, of chapter 2, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, they passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds are wrapped about my head. And the roots of the mount at the roots of the mountains. I, the, I'm very the lowest part. We're getting these pictures of the lowest part of the the earth again. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit. How many of you have ever seen those those ocean documentaries where they they go down to the very depths of the sea? And it's so dark, and they see they, they spot some of the strangest looking creatures you've ever seen. This is where Jonah is. This is what he's talking about. The, the deepest depths that are so deep, and there, there are creatures down there we haven't even seen. The human eye hasn't even seen. This is the, this is the place that, that Jonah's giving us a picture of here. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Upon, upon first looking at this prayer, it, it, it can strike us in many ways as being very sincere and very genuine. And to some measure it is. But as we, as we drill down into this this morning, we're going to see that it 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 wasn't as genuine as we might think at first glance. It wasn't as sincere. There's some duplicity here. There's some inconsistency. There's some hypocrisy and self-righteousness that we're going to discover. All of these things that are mixed in. There's mixture in this prayer. There's some good, but there's incongruence and dissonance. Like Jonah... Most of us distrust God. I mean, let's just from the very start, just get right very honest. And if we're truly honest, in our most honest moments, we can relate with Jonah in so many ways in this story. And, and one of those ways is like him, we, most of us, distrust God. We wrestle with with completely and wholeheartedly trusting Him. Our primary vision of Him is not in the beauty of His steadfast love and kindness and mercy and compassion 
and grace. That is not our primary vision of Him. Most of us think of God as a fearful, punitive authority figure or as an empty, powerless nothing. And Jesus' core message was that God is neither a powerless weakling nor a powerful boss. Those pictures of Him, Jesus seeks to completely remove and deliver us from. He's neither. But He's a lover. He's a lover. Yes, He is an incredibly uh, inconceivable God in His greatness and goodness. But with that, and this is the tension that we live with as His followers, He is great and He is transcendent. He is other than, but at the same time, He seeks to be intimate with us and to know us and walk with us. The lover of our souls. His only desire is to give us what our hearts most need and most desire. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would help us to get a revelation, an understanding, a perception, a vision of God afresh and anew in this way today. May He deliver us from the punitive pictures we have, the, 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 the empty, impersonal pictures we have. May we see Him as He truly is and seeks to be the lover of our souls, seeking to meet our greatest needs and, and, and what, our, our, what we most desire. Whether we realize it or see it or understand it or not, He knows what we most desire. We think we know what we most desire, but He knows. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So we're looking at the prayer of Jonah here. And essentially, to pray, prayer in its most basic sense, in its most foundational sense, is to listen to God's inner voice of love. Did you get that? The, the, the most essential and basic definition of prayer is that. To listen. Notice I said to listen, not to talk. Though prayer does involve communicating and speaking. But prayer seeks first to call us to listen to the inner voice of God's love. That, after all, is what obedience is all about. Listening to His inner voice of love. The word obedience is an interesting word. It comes from the Latin word ob odir. And it means to listen with great attentiveness. Obedience. To listen with great attentiveness. Attentiveness. Ob odir. Odd. Audio. We get that audio word from it. We listen with great attentiveness. Without listening, how many know we become deaf to the voice of God? If we don't give ourselves to be a people that are continually seeking to very intentionally listen 
and hear the voice of God in our lives, we become deaf to the voice of God. The Latin word for deaf is surdus. Would you say that with me? Surdus. To be completely deaf is to be absurdus. Absurd. When we are completely deaf to the voice of God, we are living absurd lives. When we no longer pray, when we no longer keep consciously attentive to His presence, no longer listen to the voice of love that speaks to us in the moment, our lives become absurd. We live absurd lives in which we are thrown back and forth between the past and the future. Double-minded lives, absurd lives. If we could just be, if we could just be, turn to the person beside you and say, just be. After all, we are human beings. Just be, if we could just be for a few minutes of each day fully and prayerful where we are in the moment, in that sacrament of the moment, discerning His presence, we would indeed discover that we are not alone and that the One who is with us wants only one thing. He only wants to give us His love as He chases us with His grace. He only ever wants to give us this. As hard as that may be to see. As much as you might think, well, right now it really seems like God's against me. Jonah was kind of feeling that way. God was against him. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. Jonah was trying to show God how God was supposed to be God. God, let me just show you how to be God, okay? Because you're not, you're not doing it. You're not really figuring this out here. Even when it seems God is against us, He's for us. Hello? Even when it seems like He's against us, He's always for us. And He's always seeking to accomplish one thing, to give us His love. And let the fullness of that love find its full expression in our lives, in healing us, in making us whole, in cleansing us, in delivering us, in everything that is needed, giving us His love and chasing us with His grace. What is God's grace? What really is God's grace? Do we really understand what God's grace is? In his great discipleship book, and I highly recommend it, it's a good, it's a good way to take your own walk with God, your, de your devotional time with God, your devotional walk with God. It, this is a good way to take it to a new level. Pick up a copy of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Read it as a part of your devotional reading. It, you just read little bits of it. You don't have to read a lot of it all in one sitting. In his great discipleship book, Packer observes that many people talk about God's grace, but it is really an abstraction to them. They don't really know God's grace. They're, 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 they're not walking in the life-changing power of God's grace. 
he goes on to explain that there are several crucial truths which the doctrine of grace presupposes in our lives. And if they are not acknowledged and felt in one's heart, clear faith in God's grace becomes impossible. Jonah's prayer shows him coming to grips with some of these things, these crucial things. In our day where we have hung salvation on a simple prayer and raising of the hand and then tallying up all the numbers of all the hands that were raised and all the the people that came forward and we say this many people were saved that day. But often we find that those people quickly fall away. Why is that? It causes us to question, did salvation really happen? Did the reality and the manifestation of God's grace really take place to them? This is what Packer's talking about. There are certain things that grace must carry out in our lives, must take hold of us in. Crucial things. And if that doesn't happen, then really clear faith in God's grace becomes impossible. It's more than just reciting a prayer and raising a hand. There is a divine transaction of the Holy Spirit that is to take place. How many are tracking with me? Hello? We've, li- we've come as evangelicals through an age of decisionism where we've just wanted this, we've looked for decisions. And the, the, the fallout of that is that that's all that has happened. There's been an apparent decision made but there's really been no follow-through in living the life of grace. This is what we're getting at here. What really is God's grace? So the first truth that we must grasp is this. Our moral ill desert or our depravity. That without God, we are living morally ill lives. We are living in a morally ill desert without Him, without His grace, alive and active in our lives and empowering us. And we need to recognize in coming to receive God's grace, we need to recognize our moral ill depravity, the desert that we're walking in, the desert of a life that we're living without Him. And that's a hard message for our culture to hear. We don't like to hear messages that we are morally ill and we are depraved and we are we don't like to hear those kind of messages today in our culture. We live in an age marked by the triumph of the therapeutic. Self-help books line our shelves of our bookstores. We're taught that our problem is a lack of self-esteem. That we live with too much shame and self-incrimination. In addition, we're told that all moral standards are socially constructed and relative, so no one has the right to make you feel guilty. You must determine right from wrong yourself. It's up to you. 
in a culture dominated by beliefs like this, much of which may be a reaction, granted, to extreme moralism, and, and that's not what we're after either. We like to go to extremes, either one way or the other. We, like, we kind of live our lives in one ditch or another ditch, rather than walking the path of life, which is a life of balance in what Jesus calls us to live. And so, this could very well be a reaction to extreme moralism. In other words, sin is simply defined as breaking the rules. You're a sinner. That means you've broken the rules. All the moral rules, the Ten Commandments, and those are good, these are all good things, but we have taken them and come to understand them in ways that God has not intended. And in so doing, we have lost the life-giving power of these things. And we've elevated these rules even above the One who gave the covenant to us. And so living for Jesus is all about keeping all the rules. And if you're not living for Him, you're a rule breaker. And so there's reaction to that. The Bible's persistent message that we are guilty sinners. Say that word with me, will you? Sinners. The Bible tells us we are sinners. It's the, it's the Greek term hamartia. Do you know what it means? It does not mean we've broken the rules. We're a bunch of slobs. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means this. It means we've missed the mark. We've missed the mark. What do you mean, we've missed the mark? Well, if we've missed the mark, that tells us that there is an intention and a purpose and a mark of design that God has intended us to know. And in falling into sin and being born into sin as those who are a part of Adam's race means that we have all missed that mark. That's the Bible's persistent message. In other words, those who have settled, we are those who have settled as sinners, as those who have missed the mark, we are those who have settled for cheap alternatives to live for far less than what it means to truly be genuinely human. That is to reflect God's image. We are image bearers of God. God has created us in His image. In sin, we have fallen short of that. We have settled for less than that. You see, are you seeing how this is about so much more than just breaking the rules? Hello? There's so much more that God has intended for us, that He has created within us. We are to be image bearers of His. We are created in His image. Sin has marred that. Sin, has, in giving ourselves to it, it has caused us to settle for less than all that He has intended for us. These modern cultural themes make the offer of grace unnecessary because the cultural messages that we are hearing is are you are good you are uh, good in and of yourself 
Your goodness is within you. You can help yourself. You can fix yourself. And we have messages like this even coming across our pulpits all over the land. But the gospel says we have settled for far less than what God has intended for us. We have missed the mark. And it doesn't proclaim that in a way to, to, to condemn us and cast us aside. It, is, it comes to us in, by way of conviction because God in His love and in His grace is chasing us and seeking to bring us back to His fullest intention and to the place where we are living our most genuine human life that we are meant to live, to be genuinely human the way He created us to be. But our culture says, you just need to do this and do that and help yourself and, and here's some therapeutic assistance for you and you can fix yourself. And, but when we acknowledge that we really are living lives of morally ill deserts and depravity, we realize that we cannot fix ourselves. Hello. You cannot fix yourself. I cannot fix you. We cannot fix one another. We can be channels of God's grace that can heal and correct and restore and deliver and redeem. But I can't fix myself. How many know what I'm talking about? Maybe you think you can fix yourself. I can't fix myself. I, I have tried to fix myself. And I end up making a bigger mess. We cannot do it. So grace comes to us. Grace chases us. God's grace chases us and says, see the state that you are in. And in seeing the state that you are in, now God says, let me provide a solution. So, so grace comes to us, it chases us, and doesn't just signal to us our, our actual factual state and condition, but then it says, I've got a solution for you as well. And that solution, the same grace that is revealing your reality to you, is the same grace that's going to bring the healing and the deliverance and the forgiveness and the redemption that is necessary and the restoration that is necessary to bring you and me back to that place of being the most genuine human beings that we can be, those He has intended us to be as those who bear His image. And as His image in us is restored and renewed, as sin is cleansed and washed away, and the mark that we have missed, we are now empowered by the grace and the Spirit of God to better move towards that. That doesn't mean that we become perfect overnight because we're going to see in a few moments there's a process to grace. Jonah's prayer recognizes in verse 3 of chapter 2, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. You see, Jonah knew that there was divine justice and that he deserved it. 
The second truth and reality that we've got to get a hold of, our spiritual depravity, our, our moral ill-desert desert that we live in. But then secondly, we must believe in our spiritual impotence. We in and of ourselves are spiritually powerless. We cannot save ourselves. We must admit not only our sinful status in being morally depraved, but also that we cannot rescue or repair our, or cleanse ourselves from sin. Our culture, again, does not help us here. For it is dominated not only by self-help therapy, but also by technology. And even if we accept responsibility for wrongdoing, we believe we can fix this. And the most common way we try to do that is to apply the technology of morality. We believe that with hard work and or diligent religious observance, keeping all the rules, we can repair and restore our relationship with God and even put God in a position where He can't say no to us. This is how Jonah was thinking. It's also called self-righteousness. It's also called Phariseeism. If I just keep all the rules, if I just give myself to live a moralistically perfect life, if I just do, I can fix this. If I just religiously observe all the rules. And this notion that we can fix ourselves through rigorous moral effort was certainly around in Jonah's day. It's not a new thing. It is a foundational assumption of every other religion. But in chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah... seems to be rightly rejecting this. He says he is sinking down to the netherworld, the bottom of the sea, the underwater world farthest from living humanity and God in His temple, and that there its bars are closed upon me forever, he says. He realized that he stands condemned and permanently barred for his sin and his rebellion. He had missed God's intended life-giving target for him. He'd missed the mark. And there's no possible way for him to open these barred gates himself. There's no possible way for him to make good his debt. The lyrics of the famous hymn, Rock of Ages, express what we're talking about here well. The hymn writer says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. In other words, if my zeal never rested, if my zeal was constant, could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. In other words, if I was zealous every day of my life and my tears never stopped flowing, I could not atone for my sin. 
myself. And then the hymn writer says, you must save. You, O oh God, must save. I can't save myself. You must save me. You alone. Beloved, we are barred from God by our sin. And the doctrine of grace resonates deeply only if we admit that we cannot save ourselves. How many know that anyone who thinks they can save themselves doesn't need God's grace? And they soon find that they can't really save themselves because only God's grace can save us. This is what we must acknowledge. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem and restore ourselves to the place of His intention for us. Being genuinely human, divine image bearers who reflect His image to the world the way He has intended us to as His people. And then the third truth we've got to get a hold of if we're to understand God's grace in a way that renews and transforms us. And may the Holy Spirit work that renewal and transformation even as we're sitting under His Word today and studying His Word together. May He renew our minds and our hearts in what His grace really is. We've got to get a hold of this. It's how incredibly costly the salvation is that God provides. It was costly. We've been around the table today. This was a costly table. A costly sacrifice. Not once, but twice in his prayer, Jonah looks not merely toward heaven, but he says, toward your holy temple. Chapter 2 and verse 4. And then in verse 7, he says it again, to the temple of your holiness. Why is Jonah saying that? What does Jonah mean by that? Jonah knew that it was over the mercy seat in the temple that God promised to speak to His people. Exodus 25. Over the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the slab of gold over the top of the Ark of the Covenant in which resided the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And on the Day of Atonement, a priest sprinkled the blood of the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. He sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. What a brilliantly powerful picture this is for us now as New Covenant people in illuminating our understanding of the mercy and grace of God. The temple was the residence of the Holy God. Yahweh. Al Shaddai. His perfect moral righteousness represented by the Ten Commandments, which no human being has or ever can keep. You realize that, don't you? Every one of us in this room has broken one of the commandments, at least. And in and of ourselves, we will never be able to keep the commandments. That's why we need Christ. The one who was without 
sin, the one who modeled for us what it looks like to be genuinely human, to be those who hit the mark in Christ Jesus. It's a powerful picture. How can we approach God? Won't the law of God condemn us? Yes, it would, except for the blood of the atoning sacrifice on the mercy seat over the Ten Commandments, shielding us from its condemnation. You seeing the picture here in the Older Testament? The blood is sprinkled. It's covering. It's atoning. It's making atonement for the people. This, this was the purpose of it and, and, and why God instructed these things. It's only when the death of another secures our forgiveness that we can then speak with God. Neither Jonah nor any other Israelite at the time completely understood all that this meant. But a better picture of the gospel of Jesus could hardly be imagined. The temple and the sacrificial system established all three of these grace truths that we've just looked at. Our absolute depravity. Our absolute powerlessness. And then the incredible cost that was paid in redeeming. The sacrificial system gives us a picture of all of these truths. We are sinners, unable to save ourselves and, 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 and to be saved. We are only able to be saved through extreme and costly measures. Not until centuries later would it be revealed that atonement could not be affected by the blood of bulls or goats or lambs, but only by the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. This Old Testament picture was pointing ahead to this. And now the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, has been sprinkled upon the mercy seat of God. And by His grace that chases us, we come to a place as the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts and lives where we see it. Our eyes are open spiritually. Our ears are open. And we see and we hear and we recognize I am absolutely missing the mark here. I am absolutely depraved and empty of any righteousness of my own. I am absolutely powerless to save myself. And what a great sacrifice has been paid and has been made for me, for you. Hebrews 10 talks about all of this. Study it. Hebrews is a good book right there that indicates to us we cannot function without the Older Testament. For all of those out there that would say the Old Testament is passé, no longer needed, it's obsolete. Well, if you, if you do that, you'll never understand the book of Hebrews. How many people, how many of us have sung of God's amazing grace? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We, how many of us have sung that? It's one of the most well-known hymns even outside the church. 
We've given lip service to the idea, but we have run from that same grace, not permitting it to profoundly transform us. God's grace becomes wondrous and endlessly consoling and beautiful and empowering and humbling only when we fully believe and grasp and remind ourselves of all three of these background truths that we've just looked at together that we deserve in and of ourselves we deserve nothing but condemnation that we in and of ourselves are utterly incapable of saving ourselves and that God has indeed saved us despite our sin at infinite cost to himself. Yeah? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This, this should, that should cause at least a, a nice, nice quiet hallelujah in the room or something. Some people have too high a view of themselves. God's grace is not stunning because they don't feel they need it. Or at least not so much. Others most certainly see themselves as failures, but while they may have some idea of an abstract God of love out there somewhere, somehow, they have little understanding of the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice to purchase them out of sin's debt and slavery and grip and bars and death. They aren't lost in wonder and love and praise at the lengths and depths to which God has gone for us. May that be freshly revealed to our hearts and lives today. Would you stand together with me as Frank and the team come? Can I invite you on this Lord's Table Sunday, on this third Sunday of Epiphany? Epiphany means revealing a revealing, a revelation. Can I invite you to avail yourself in this room today, in these days of epiphany, to a fresh revelation of God's grace, a fresh revelation of our lives without God's grace, a fresh revelation of the sacrifice and the price that was paid in God's grace, the grace that chases us. As we stand together, can I invite you to just lift your hands to Him? And in doing so, we're just simply saying, Lord, I open my life right now, my soul, my spirit, my mind, my will, my emotions. I make myself completely vulnerable and open before you today because you made yourself completely and absolutely the most vulnerable for me. The cross of Christ is the greatest, most vivid picture of how vulnerability shows itself in its greatest form. For you, for me, 